Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Jill Wine-Banks, Barb McQuaid, Kimberly Atkins-Store, and me, Joyce Vance. Today, we'll be discussing the most recent news from the January 6th committee on the release of the report, the decision to release Trump's tax returns, and the fate of the Biden administration's efforts to end, with a week's delay, the Title 42 immigration policy implemented by the Trump administration. And as always, we look forward to answering your questions at the end of the show. But before we dig in today, we have a birthday to celebrate. Barb, you turned uh, another year, I don't want to say older, another year better, didn't you, recently? Oh, you're so nice to frame it that way. Yes, <laughs> I had a recent birthday. Thank you very much. It was, uh, it was a grand day. Had a great time. What did you do to celebrate? Well, uh, I went with my mother and my sister and my daughter, and we went into Detroit to see Les Mis. Oh, uh, fun! And, uh, yeah, so dinner at a fun restaurant. You know, I love. I just love being in the city in the in the winter time at Christmas time. You know, the lights are up. We walked around yeah. the skating rink and the Christmas tree, and we had dinner, and then we went to see Les Mis. And the the greatest coincidence ever occurred. I walk into the theater. You know, it's a big theater sit down in my seat, glance at the person next to me, you know, just to give the little sort of acknowledgement nod. And it turns out to be my very best friend from high school. So my oh, oh, so we had a great time watching it together. <laughs> that's insane. Oh, that's I really love Les Mis. What a fun yeah. thing to do. Yeah, I had seen it once before, but it's been 30 years. And so it was, you know, so good. So that's do so you great. get a full birthday celebration in being that close to Christmas? You know, frankly, I do. You know how people say, oh, I bet your birthday is, is overlooked so much because it's so close to Christmas. Kind of just the opposite. I end up, you know, it's kind of a quieter time, but people start making plans. So I did this thing with, you know, my mom and my sister and my daughter and my husband took me out to dinner. I end up kind of doing pretty well for myself if I do say so myself. So don't tell anybody. That's like, great. I kind of I milk this whole, oh, my poor me, my birthday gets overlooked. I, I think in some ways it gets amplified. So uh, I, uh, I, I had a very happy birthday indeed. Good for you. I am so into celebrating and I'm so looking forward to the holiday weekend. Do you guys all have big plans? Yeah, so for me, I'm very happy um, that the stepkids are home from college. Um, and one tradition that I've sort of brought uh, for Christmas is growing up, we had our parties on Christmas Eve and one of the foods was we'd always make was fried chicken because on the next day, Yum. you know, you're opening presents and cold fried chicken is the best snack ever. So uh, after we record this podcast, I'm going to fry a big batch of chicken um, that will be around over the weekend. And plus on Christmas night, we host a nice dinner for family too. So it's a really lovely time of year. I like the getting together and the eating of food even better than the opening of presents, honestly. Feel free to come down here and fry chicken anytime you want to <laughs> anytime. come and visit. I love it so much. Um, Jill, what about y'all? Are you celebrating Christmas, Hanukkah? What are y'all doing? Well, we celebrate Hanukkah, but this year my family didn't get together. We always used to do a big, big Hanukkah celebration with all the kids getting presents uh, with you know some like dollar limit on how much you could spend. My family, birthdays, you know, going back to Barb's, birthdays are a big deal. And I used to have, as a kid, oh my God, the most sensational birthday parties. My parents would bring in clowns or magicians and they would decorate Aww. with cray paper. And uh, it was really, it was a big deal. And I've kept that up. I mean, birthdays are really important. And 
my husband's always really good about birthdays and some of my best friends, we always celebrate birthdays and go out together uh, for big birthdays. Uh, one of my big ones recently, uh, they took me to a, a hotel and spa for a weekend. And that, you know, just having the time together was the best gift of all. That was the best. Yeah, we need to all do birthdays, um, Jill Weinbank style, I think. <laughs> Well, the January 6th report is out at long last. All 845 pages, four appendices, even the executive summary is 154 pages long. The committee has also been posting witness transcripts on their website. Um, and I know that uh, Joyce stayed up all night to write a beautiful summary for her Substack. You ought to read it if you haven't looked at that yet. Joyce, thank you. What a gift to all of us to provide that summary. Kim, you nerd, you were up to what, 2 a.m. reading the report. So Guilty. Um, um, my, my favorite observation of this thing, you know, it was supposed to drop Wednesday, right? And then yep, it got delayed right. maybe because of the Zelensky visit. Uh, and then it was supposed to come Thursday and it didn't come Thursday till almost 10 PM. Um, and Joyce, you noted that there's some typos in it, right? Yes. I saw that too. The federal Bureau of intelligence. Oh, geez. oh. You, know what my, you know what my favorite typo is? What? What? It's on page one. <gasps> it says the date of the report is December 00, <laughs> 2022. <laughs> Clearly, someone was supposed to fill that in later when they decided which date was coming out. And oh they, my God, that's funny. So number know, zero, zero. I found the typos when I was searching the document and I was searching mm. for Giuliani and I misspelled it in the way that I always misspell it. And I'm like, how come there's only three references to Giuliani? And the oh. I realized it was, it was three misspellings. <laughs> oh my oh, God. God. That's terrible. Oh, that they transcribed. have spell check? Yeah, it switched like, the, the, the U and the I. Yeah, um, that's an easy uh, one. Yeah. Oh, well, they were working fast. They were working fast. Yeah, maybe they'll do an a, a, a amended version to correct the typos. For, I mean, this is for history, folks. Come on. It's like... Um, you know, it's like a Sidney Powell filing. You know how like some of those Trump lawyers? <laughs> oh, man. Oh uh, someone reminded me today so that, funny. remember, there is the one they that was filed. They get it, the caption wrong, you know, filing in West Plam Beach, Florida. It's crazy. Oh, man. Well, let's let's talk about uh, let the, the report and what's in it because it's chock full of great stuff. And maybe starting with the criminal referrals. Jill, I'll ask you about this. The committee suggests to the Department of Justice four crimes. Uh, the first one was obstruction of an official proceeding. What, what is that? And do you think it's a strong charge that the Justice Department might actually charge here? I think that is one of the strongest charges. It doesn't have some of the complications of proof that, for example, the insurrection one has. It is clear that the intent of all of the overarching activities of this coup plot were intended to stop the Congress from doing its constitutional duty in certifying the election results. That's what it was all about. It was not just sending people there on January 6th for that sole purpose, but it was all the stuff about pressuring Pence to interfere with it, pressuring state legislatures, the fake electors, all of that was part of 
interfering. And it was done with deliberate intent. So I think that is a very strong uh, case. And as I say, the official proceeding at issue here is the confirmation of the Electoral College vote. And there's just, I don't see a defense to that one at all. So of all of them, that is my favorite charge, except for the penalty of insurrection, which makes that more important. Yeah, we'll get to that one in a minute. How about, Joyce, let me ask you about the second charge they refer to there, um, conspiracy to defraud the United States. Can you explain what that is? That's what we we always call the Klein conspiracy. What's the basis for the charge and how do you assess the strength of that one? So this comes from, um, the statute is 18 U.S. Code 371. And as you point out, Barb, it's the general conspiracy provision. You know, there are a lot of crimes that have their own conspiracy statute, like a civil rights conspiracy has its own conspiracy statute or seditious conspiracy or drug statutes. 371 is sort of the general statute that makes it a a conspiracy crime to agree to commit any federal crime. But then there's a second prong in the statute that makes it a crime to conspire or to agree to defraud the government. And that's the charge that's under uh, discussion here. You know, I agree with Jill, the obstruction of an official proceeding, I think it's the strongest of the charges. But the Klein conspiracy provision is also a very strong contender because it involves a group of people who agree to do something that essentially interferes with the functioning of government. It's sort of a conspiracy provision for the obstruction charge. So, um, you know, is it strong? Is it provable? On the one hand, we can all look at the evidence and draw our own common sense conclusions. The evidence is very strong, but we don't know what additional evidence DOJ has and whether or not there's some form of defense that they see in the evidence that's not publicly available. You know, I think this has a lot of legs, the notion that there was a conspiracy among all of the lawyers who were identified in the report to defraud the government, I think is a place that DOJ could well end up. There is a lot of evidence that ties Mark Meadows into a conspiracy to defraud, but proof beyond a reasonable doubt is a lot more demanding than um, conviction in the court of public opinion. So I think we should all give DOJ the space to do its job. Yeah, of course, you know, the committee put forward what I thought was an incredibly uh, compelling narrative, but, you know, they didn't have to worry about the rules of evidence. The Justice Department has to make sure, you know, they can't rely on hearsay and some of the things the right. committee did. They have to worry about defenses. There's going to be a real defense lawyer arguing defenses, you know, whether that's intent or constitutional defenses like the First Amendment. Um, and the witnesses will be subject to cross-examination. These witnesses were not subjected to cross-examination. So that's something that the Justice Department has to do for itself, really push uh, on their stories and uh, really assess their credibility uh, in ways that the committee just didn't have to worry about. And Barb, could, Barb, could I just add one thing based on what Joyce said, which was the reference to all the lawyers who were involved. It's an incredible number of lawyers who are going to end up being defendants, most likely in this case. And I was struck by the similarity to Watergate where because so many of the defendants were lawyers, the Bar Association uh, did a major overhaul of ethics rules. There are now courses in ethics for lawyers because of it. And it's really amazing. Now, I don't know if it's because so many lawyers go into government service at high enough levels to get noticed, 
or whether there's something really wrong. I, I, I just don't know. But there are a lot of lawyers involved in this. Yeah. And if they passed ethics rules or training or guidance after Watergate, looks like they didn't take. <laughs> uh, Kim, let's let's talk about the, the third charge uh, that the committee suggested. That was conspiracy to submitting false documents to the government. Can you explain that charge? Yeah, that one. So I didn't see that one coming um, initially Same, when I saw yeah. it in the referral. But then when I looked at it, it I thought, oh, of course, um, this seems like um, it's right in line. And uh, it's found in um, 18 USC section 1001. And it essentially criminalizes making false statements in matters involving um, the federal government, which certainly this uh, seems like it would fit the bill, particularly when you're talking about this fake elector scheme where fake electors were found, fake documents were created, all kinds of lies were uh, submitted um, in terms of a government function. And I think that it is uh, a pretty good fit here. The, the, the penalty comes uh, with five years, but it's also something that, you know, to Jill's point, there were an awful lot of attorneys involved in putting this together. And I think that's part of the, first of all, there were, um, to, to be fair, a lot of attorneys who quit and who were replaced by rogue folks, uh, rogue lawyers who were willing to engage in this fraudulent scheme. And they were deeply, deeply involved in this. And not only do are, are lawyers more aware than most about the potential criminality of engaging in a plot like this, but they also take an oath. So we, we talk a lot about the fact that you take an oath, you need to adhere. Lawyers, all of us, each of us at some point in time took an oath to uphold the law to, to, to the constitution, to be officers of the court. And I think both in terms of their uh, intent uh, in the criminal cases and whatever disciplinary action they're uh, state bar licensing boards could bring. Um, I think that's something that's really important. Yeah, so I, I agree with you. I thought I didn't see that one coming either, but it stri strikes me as a very good um, and finite kind of a charge. You know, you can yeah. kind of get your arms around that and the way the others are a little more, I don't know, sprawling, I guess. Um, and then the fourth is um, assisting in an in insurrection. This one I thought was actually kind of brilliant. I didn't see this coming. I thought it was a loser because um, inciting insurrection has some very um, uh, real First Amendment concerns. And I expected that this charge would have to be based on Trump's speech at the Ellipse, where he urged supporters to fight like hell or you're not going to have a country anymore and said, you know, we're going to march down to the Capitol. But I thought he threw in enough vagueness to um, survive the test the Supreme Court has put uh, in place for political speech in that case called Brandenburg versus Ohio. We've discussed that before. The court said before the government may criminalize political speech, it must show that um, the speaker intended to incite imminent uh, uh, illegal activity and that the speech was likely to produce that result. And so I thought that, uh, you know, it was vague enough. He never said, I want you to break into the Capitol. Um, and he used the word peacefully. He threw that in. So I thought maybe that would be enough to defeat that one. But what they did is they focused on the tweet that Trump sent at 2.24 p.m., um, you know, an hour after he's back at the White House and he sees this attack unfolding. It started shortly after 1 p.m., uh, he watches the whole thing on television. And then after he sees that this insurrection is underway, he tweets, where's the effect of, you know, Mike Pence didn't have the courage to do what was right. The United States demands 
the truth. And man, talk about just pouring fuel on the fire. Uh, we heard t- testimony from some of the witnesses who were working in the White House that they, they were just disgusted by that tweet. And so that's the one that he said assisted insurrection. He didn't incite it, it was already going on, but he assisted because he emboldened and, and, and put fuel on the fire. So I thought that was a really uh, brilliant way to frame that one. What did you guys think? You think that'll fly? Can I take a slightly more aggressive position? You know, the appellate lawyer in me, I'm usually so cautious. Um, but I hear you about the First Amendment defense under Brandenburg versus Ohio. And the way I view the evidence is that if you look at it all together, it really is a good incitement charge because although Trump uses the word peaceful, you know, it's just like this little one word in the middle of this huge speech on the ellipse where he's in essence winding up this mob and pointing them towards the Capitol. And I think these these later tweets and also the 187 minutes where he does nothing provides fuller context for that original yeah. speech and shows that he really did mean to incite. But Barb, what I think is so brilliant about what the committee did and, and you pointed out is like so many federal crimes, there are a lot of possible verbs in the statute, right? And yes. so, so aiding or providing comfort to people is sufficient to ring the bell on this statute. And and I think once you look at everything in focus, this charge is much more strong um, than I originally gave it credit for being. Yeah, these are the things that happen. I love you all. Yeah, I think, yeah. And I think the waiting was really an important element of his culpability. And the fact that as soon as he said, go home, it ended, Mm -hmm. meaning they were his people, They were under his control and he knew it all along and he sat there gleefully watching it. And there's plenty of testimony about him watching it with joy. And I think that when you put it all together, that actually ends up being a pretty good charge. You don't usually have direct um, evidence of somebody's intent. I mean, every once in a while you get the foolish defendant who says, you know, I really want to incite that mob. Um, (laughs) But often you have to use circumstantial evidence and pull the inferences out of it. And Barb, I heard you saying this on TV earlier today, and I really agree with this. I think the committee will use, or rather DOJ will use the report. They'll sort of mine it to see what evidence is in there that they may not already have, but they'll draw their own legal conclusions. I think, though, when they look at this, they may well end up concluding that there's sufficient evidence to indict for incitement here. Yeah, I just think it would be poetic justice for Trump to ultimately be prosecuted for something he said in a tweet. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I am am with you on that one. We'll definitely be be having a sisters-in-law get-together party if that happens. Hey, Jill, let me ask you about seditious conspiracy, which was not included in the report. You mentioned earlier when we were talking about um, you thought inciting insurrection was in many ways the most important because it brings with it such serious consequences. Um, can, you, can you tell us what you mean by that? Well, uh, what I mean is that it bars you from holding office if you are guilty of insurrection. So that one becomes really important because it's the only one that has a direct carry over to that penalty of you can't serve. If you took an oath to the office, to the Constitution, which of course the president does. So when he was sworn in, he took that oath. And if you violate that oath by engaging in conduct that is considered insurrection to take down the government, you can never hold office again. So that's why that one's important. Seditious conspiracy is 
the highest charge that has been brought against the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys are now under uh, trial right now. Um, and that is something that DOJ could subsequently add. The problem is the linkage. The And right now we haven't seen real clear evidence that links Donald Trump directly to them and to their plans. I mean, the plans they had were clearly laid out in the first Oath Keepers trial. But it doesn't connect directly to Donald Trump. Now, if one of those people from either the Proud Boys or the Oath Keepers ends up flipping and saying, well, here's, here's my phone. I talked to the White House. I talked to the war room. And the war room told me that they were talking to Donald Trump then the Department of Justice could add seditious conspiracy. So it is something that is still possible, but it made sense to me that it wasn't there right now. Yeah, I, I agree. I think I agree with you that they didn't make that link. Um, but it, it, that's not to say the Justice Department won't, because again, the Justice right. Department has tools not available to the committee, like search warrants and grand jury, and uh, they might be more inclined to give witness immunity to compel testimony. So we'll see. But yeah, I agree with you. I, I was looking to see whether that would be in there. And uh, and it's not. And I, I agree with that based on the information they've been able to gather. Well, let's turn to some of the transcripts that have been released, because those are certainly interesting. Um, Joyce, there are a lot, an awful lot of witnesses there invoking their Fifth Amendment rights. Uh, what, if anything, should we conclude from that? So, you know, I'm, I'm at war internally on this one. Um, everyone is entitled. You have a constitutional right to assert the Fifth Amendment, not only when you're guilty, but when you believe answers that you give might tend to incriminate you. Um, so it can be used by defense counsel legitimately to fend off um, indictment. But look, in this situation, it's just so pervasive. I mean, everyone is taking the Fifth Amendment. Everyone is trying to avoid testifying. It's like they're rave, waving a big red flag in, in front of the bull saying, come look at me, look at me here. You know, we're the people that committed insurrection. Um, and, and so my hope here is that although they have legitimately asserted their rights, DOJ will take them very seriously, will take their assertion of the Fifth Amendment at face value, and will scrutinize all of these folks to see what evidence they have uh, absent their own testimony that tends to incriminate them so that they can be held accountable. Yeah, I, uh, I, I'm, I'm having a new um, view of some of these witnesses who say things like, I don't recall, after reading the transcript of Cassidy Hutchinson. Kim, let me ask you about that one. I thought her transcript was really quite riveting. Um, she describes that she felt pressured that was being applied to her uh, to lie by lawyers yeah. that were provided by Trump. Um, and do you think that the legal advice that she describes was unethical or even illegal? <laughs> I, I think the likelihood is very good in this case. So listen, uh, Cassidy Hutchinson was originally represented by someone named Stefan Passantino. He is the former top White House ethics lawyer under Donald Trump. Let that sink in for a second as we continue to tell this story. He was paid when he was representing Hutchinson by the Save America PAC which is Donald Trump's political action committee. We spoke on a past podcast about the potential ethical implications of Donald Trump's PAC 
paying for the representation of witnesses in the January 6th uh, investigation. And this is precisely what we're talking about, because Hutchinson testified that this attorney said to to her, we just want to focus on protecting the president. We all know you are loyal. Let's get you in and out and this will be easy, I promise. That's like mob boss speak, right? That's basically telling her um, that, you know, how she should testify, that she could say that she didn't remember something, you know, even if she did. These are things, just to be clear, to be crystal clear, as an attorney, you cannot do. You cannot advise. Saying to someone to say they don't know something when they do is lying. You cannot advise your clients to do that. You cannot obstruct justice, which is essentially what that amounts to. And that is very much a crime. So I found that um, very interesting. And I hope that that provides um, some impetus to take a closer look into all of these attorneys that were paid uh, basically by Donald Trump's PAC in the course of this investigation, because that very much looks like obstruction to me. Yeah. I mean, have you you probably have all prepped witnesses before, right, for testimony. Yes. I mean, you know, what I used to tell them is like, tell the truth. Yes. (laughs) I I mean, I would say, listen carefully. Make sure you're answering the question. You only have to answer the question that's asked. Don't answer anything. If you don't know, say that. But and a lot of times the witnesses, because they want to do a good job, right? They ask you, like, what should I say? And you always say the truth. If there's something that you answer the question that's posed to you, if there's something you don't know, say so. But they certainly cannot say, hey, be loyal. No. And that doesn't happen here, right? Because when she starts talking about the incident in the vehicle, the response from her original lawyer is, no, 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 we don't want to go there. And that, to me, is the moment where he crosses the line very clearly. It's, I have to add that during Watergate, one of the charges of obstruction was for the language saying, you can always say, I don't remember, I don't recall, even if you do. That was part of the obstruction of justice charges on which defendants were convicted. The exact oh, wow. same language. Oh, that's now that so interesting. Came from, that wasn't necessarily from lawyers advising clients. That was from the president of the United States Jeez. and his top aides. I think it's but worse with a lawyer, right? Yeah, because yeah. they know. Yeah. They know better. Yeah. Well, so he is a lawyer. Uh, he was a lawyer, uh, Richard Nixon. So it's not like he didn't know. Of course, yeah. anybody knows that you can't say, I don't recall if you do. That's a lie. I don't know. Period. For Jeff Sessions in his confirmation hearing. (laughs) (laughs) Really, I don't recall. I don't recall. Man, I can't do the accent as good as I used to. (laughs) That I'd like to hear. Jill, what do you think the special counsel will do with this report? So it's going to, you know, they've got access to this. Merrick Garland had said before they were going to watch the hearings. They're probably going to read this stuff, right? Do you think it makes it more or less likely in any way that the Justice Department will file charges? I don't think it makes it more or less likely, except to the extent that they discover evidence that is helpful or harmful to the case they have already developed. I'm one of those people who criticized them for being so slow off the starting gate. I mean, they were really taking too long. And I said that from the beginning. But I bought recently a running rabbit pin because I think they're making up for it. They're they're <laughs> running uh, yeah. fast now. And so I think they're well into doing what needs to be done. 
what they'll look for now is, are there any inconsistencies in things that witnesses said to them and that same witness said to the January 6th committee? Or are there inconsistencies between witness who testified at January 6th and something that one of their witnesses, a different person said to the grand jury? They will look for additional leads on people they want to interview or talk to, or people who didn't respond to subpoenas, all of those members of Congress who can be forced to testify before a grand jury in a way that they haven't been, although I think they could have been, uh, forced to testify before the, the congressional hearings. So I think that's what they'll be looking for, but I, it's not going to affect their decision on do they have admissible evidence. And again, a lot of this, I mean, a lot of what Cassidy Hutchison said was brilliant and wonderful, but it was hearsay. And so it's great for informing the public, but it's not admissible evidence in a trial. So they have to look for what is admissible evidence and is there anything new in what they're reading with the transcripts that they're getting and the full report? And does it put it in a different context and framework? Uh, I think for example, there's stuff in there about Dominion that may lead to some additional charges, but probably yeah. just civil case, not a, a criminal one. Well, can I um, ask this question, though? Because the yeah. point is well taken that the work of the committee and the evidentiary standards of the committee are very different than in a criminal context. But there are lawyers on this committee. They know that, right? It, is there anything we can extrapolate from that? They're not just doing this completely outside the realm and understanding of how the DOJ works. No, but their purpose in doing this was one, to make legislative proposals, two, to figure out how they could prevent a recurrence of this, and three, to inform the American public. And the American public can evaluate when Cassidy Hutchison says, this is what Tony Ornato told me. I think it's up to the American public to evaluate that in a way that's different than a jury would, and to determine how will that influence who I vote for? So I think they served an important purpose by having that testimony. And I think her credibility stands up quite well. Um, and of course, you know, we'll see what Ornato has to say, who obviously is viewed as not as credible as she is. Um, so that's how I feel about it. Joyce, let me ask you a question. I mean, certainly we've talked about how all this information is something that the Justice Department will use, uh, but it's so public. Are, are there ways that that might harm the Justice Department's investigation? So, yeah, I think that there really are. Um, you know, and it's it's tough because I appreciate the point Jill is making, which is that the committee has a different job to do than the Justice Department, right? The committee has an oversight function. They have a, a protection of democracy function. They have a public information function. They have a historical function. But those functions are a little bit at odds with DOJ's investigative priorities here. As a prosecutor, for instance, you, you just almost get hives as you see these transcripts being publicly released because it, it gives um, potential defendants a way to see what the evidence against them looks like. It gives them a way to clean up their own stories uh, if they vary from what's in the transcripts of other people's testimony or to have time to think about how they might explain those differences. So in many ways, um, the public benefits and at the same time, potential defendants benefit. 
I was a little bit surprised to see this full release. Um, I thought perhaps the committee would hold some things back. One of the explanations that I've heard is that because the committee is about to expire, they felt like they needed to make everything public, but you know, they could have preserved this evidence by providing it to, DO, to DOJ. That would have meant that it would not disappear. Um, when the new Congress comes into place. So look, you know, Congress is a political animal. Um, I am, you know, fully cognizant of the fact that this now gives Democratic members of Congress the opportunity when they campaign to say that they stood up for democracy, that they uh, requested that DOJ take an aggressive stance and, and prosecute these people. And so that political agenda, which is a legitimate agenda, an important one, can sometimes be at odds with the way that DOJ would like to conduct business. And frankly, because the committee was out in front of DOJ for at least a year uh, on this investigation, Investigation. You know, DOJ really didn't kick it into gear until late last year, early this year, depending on, on which version you credit. Um, the, the committee was there first. And so in some ways, I think they feel justified in releasing this information. Yeah, I can only imagine how hard it must be. I've never had to deal with anything like that where, you know, every, members of the public know more about the case than they do. You know, there's so many people, yeah. I've read all the footnotes and I, uh, <laughs> what, what about Kenneth Cheesebro and, you know, the memo he sent, you know. <laughs> oh, man. Um, Kim, let me just ask you one last question. Um, and that is, you know, we've been talking a lot about the impact of this on DOJ. What about the impact on Fonnie Willis in Georgia? You know, I've long expected her investigation to be closer to done. You know, she talked about yeah. writing a final report in December. And now this lands uh, on her desk. What do you think this um, report, what kind of uh, effect will it have on her work? Yeah, I'm not sure because she was ahead of the game getting some crucial yeah. people in this case to testify like Rudy Giuliani, like um, Meadows, like others, even before this report came out. So I'm going to guess, I don't know, but I'm going to guess that she's doing just fine and that this could might supplement and buttress whatever she has. But it's certainly not something that she was waiting on. She seemed to be proceeding pretty expeditiously and it's all the signs are that whatever actual uh, action, including charges, may come out of her office before they come even out of uh, out of Smith's office. All right. Y'all, I may have forwarded this to you guys. I can't remember for sure. But I got, as I'm sure y'all do, just a random, quote unquote, anonymous email that was sent to my um, inbox at work last week. And it was from someone who said, you know, just want to give you a heads up. Fonnie Willis has a sealed indictment that she's ready to release at any point in time. And I just normally hit delete on those sort of things, right? Like people do that, it's a prank. But I have to confess, I stopped for about 10 seconds to contemplate what it would be like if in the middle of the release of the report, Bonnie <laughs> Willis dropped an indictment. <laughs> I mean, be. you know, I, I think to Kim's point, it could happen any day. That's not outside the realm of possibility here. Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting to watch um, how this plays out in the coming year. This week brought news that Trump's tax returns may finally see the light of day. It also revealed big problems at the IRS, which didn't follow its own rules requiring regular presidential audits. So, Jill, I want to start with you uh, and talk about 
this revelation that the IRS was, which is supposed to routinely audit presidential tax returns, which has in the past just didn't during the Trump administration. What do you think was involved there? We know that Obama was audited, that President Biden has been audited regularly, but Trump was it. Was it political? Was it a funding issue? Was it both? What do you think? I think, first of all, we need to note that the reason there is a policy goes back to Richard Nixon. He tried taking a huge tax deduction for his pre-presidential papers and got caught with that. And the result was a IRS policy. Uh, And one of the things that the committee is now recommending is that it become a law, not just policy, that they do it. The original excuse, by the way, was one thing. Now it's developed into something else. What's interesting is that the audit that was finally done of Trump didn't start until Congressman Neal made the request for the returns under the proper statute that he has the authority to do that. Now, was the failure to do the audit until then political? Well, I guess many of us are probably suspicious that when the boss is the subject of the audit and has long said, you know, I didn't do anything wrong and any investigation of me is a witch hunt, that probably there was some pressure not to investigate. In the same way that Mnuchin didn't turn over the tax returns, even though to me the law is quite clear and says when asked, he must turn it over. That seems political to me too. But there is now some issue being raised that there isn't enough funding for this, that there isn't enough expertise, that no president has had such a complex business corporate arrangement, and that, frankly, IRS was outgunned, that they really didn't know how to approach the investigation of such a complex corporate structure. If there is any truth to that, That is really despicable. That is something that must be fixed by funding and by training. There has to be. And having the results of an audit two years after a president leaves office is not helpful. When we're looking to see things like conflicts of interest, is foreign policy influenced by who's giving him money? Is he in desperate financial straits because he's losing $100 million or $400 million or more? Well, those are things we need to know while he's in office and actually before he's elected, which is why there needs to be a law saying that you must, if you are running for president, turn over your tax returns. That's a bare minimum. And I will just say briefly, Jill, the points that you make are so important because I I believe the reporting that Trump's tax returns were such a, you know, indecipherable mess with all the pass-through organizations and the complications and and how complicated they were. That's precisely why most presidential candidates put their stuff into blind trust. That is why they don't have (laughs) this kind of income streams when they're running for public office so that you don't have to disclose this kind of messy, indecipherable financial state that you're in. Everybody did it. Did it. People who may may even have been richer than Donald Trump. Sorry to state it. Mitt Romney did it. You know, everybody did it when they ran for president. It's not hard to do. The president is set. And I think that should be the law as well. But um, Joyce, I want to talk about what we know so far about 
Trump's filings themselves. They have not yet been released. But do we have enough information to know if anything dodgy was going on there? And how does that fit with the New York uh, Attorney General's investigation into his finances? Yeah, right. The plot thickens. Um, You know, the important thing here is less what we, the public, know and more what red flags are emerging for the IRS, right? Um, Trump did not have the mandatory uh, audit that he should have had as a president, but there are now real reasons for the IRS to take a good look at his uh, taxes. The committee questioned the legitimacy of some of the deductions he took. There was one big one for $916 million, questions about the legitimacy of loans that were given to his children. Um, And some of the members of the committee said on Tuesday that the tax returns were very short on substantiating details. There was reporting that they had expected, you know, voluminous materials. And instead it was just a few simple boxes, which just didn't seem to be what you would expect for the complicated corporate infrastructure that Trump has created. So what this really does is it highlights the need for a credible IRS process. They're the experts. Some of that stuff that looks dodgy might in fact be legitimate. But you know, something that I think about a lot is my accountant won't let me take really basic things as business-related tax deductions. Um, And it looks to me like there was a different standard for Trump than there was for me. And I hope the IRS will shake that out. And Barb, that leaves me with an honest question. You know, we have the Supreme Court cleared the way by saying the Ways and Means Committee has the authority to request and release Donald Trump's tax returns. But there's a different question. Should they be released? Um, You have Republicans saying that it's just political and turnabout will be fair play. But are are there actual legitimate concerns about privacy here? I mean, if if they were part of the investigatory and uh, oversight function of Congress, why do we need to see them? Yeah, you know, they are and they aren't. I'm kind of conflicted on this. Uh, When you're a prosecutor, for example, tax records are given extreme protection. They have to be locked. You have to get a court order to obtain them. You can't get them with an ordinary grand jury subpoena. And that's because of this uh, idea that tax returns are so private because they show sources of income and dependents and deductions and all other kinds of things. Um, But Uh, You know, in this case, the committee met for four hours behind closed doors, so we don't know exactly the basis for their decision to release these. And because we have not seen them yet, they are being redacted to remove things like social security numbers and the like. Um, We haven't seen them yet either. But what they said is they thought that it was important in interest of transparency for the public to see these tax returns. Uh, They believe that when a person becomes, runs for president, it is a norm to share these things with the public. Uh, Trump, of course, broke that norm. And so I think that's uh, why they feel like perhaps he's a little different than others. Um, But they also noted that he had a lot of irregularities in the returns themselves in terms of uh, what he claimed as uh, deductions and business losses and other things. And so perhaps they believe that, you know, if the public is to to see these, uh, it will give people more comfort that there really was something amiss here. So uh, I don't know, but we'll, we'll find out in short order why uh, they were disclosed. We're 
we're recording this on Friday at about four o'clock in the afternoon, and we are still waiting to see if the Supreme Court rules in a particular case that we're about to talk about. If it happens while we're talking, we'll take a break and figure out what it is. If not, here's what you can expect coming. And this has to do with Title 42, which is part of the public health service law that allows the U.S. government to prevent entrance of people into the country during public health emergencies. The Trump administration relied on this provision to issue an order during the pandemic that authorized the immediate expulsion of migrants without giving them a chance to even apply for asylum, which they would normally have the right to do. Title II was very little used and probably nobody ever heard of it until this use by the Trump administration which claimed it was for public health reasons, but which I believe was actually a way to keep immigrants out of America and to avoid addressing the need for comprehensive immigration reform. The Biden administration left that policy in place, but now wants to end reliance on it. In a suit filed by the ACLU, U.S. District Court Judge Emmett Sullivan said that the policy was arbitrary and capricious, and it didn't effectively ban infections from coming into the country anyway. And they, he ordered it ended effective December 21st, which has now passed. But 19 states, mostly Republican-led, appealed, and it's now pending at the Supreme Court while tens of thousands of migrants wait in what is now freezing weather without adequate shelter or food. Kim, can you just briefly describe Title 42's the case that's before the Supreme Court? Yeah. and? what Justice Roberts' 11th hour blocking of this means? Yeah, so essentially, as you laid it out, was exactly right. And when the Biden administration came in, they did not immediately lift this policy. They left it in place for a while. So a couple things happened. First, in 2021, um, a group of migrant rights activists sued to end this policy, saying, look, this was this had nothing to do with COVID. It needs to stop right away because it's making it more difficult, including for those who are claiming asylum uh, to do that. Um, soon after, the Biden administration said, no, no, we want we want to end it. We're going to try to end this. Well, once the Biden administration announced that, a bunch of Republican state officials sued to try to keep it in place. And they claimed that it would cause a surge in border crossings that would overwhelm border, border officials. It would overwhelm uh, hospitals if these people did have COVID and, and so on. And so it made its way up the appellate chain. And recently, uh, Chief Justice John Roberts issued a temporary administrative stay, which keeps it in place for now while the parties submit their briefs to the U.S. Supreme Court to decide what to do. This is the emergency docket. I know sometimes we call it the shadow docket when um, the cases could have precedential value, but this is actually the emergency docket working as it should, um, which is when something comes up in an expedited way, the court needs to act on it quickly to decide exactly what to do. So that, as we speak now on this Friday afternoon, is what we're waiting for. So let's follow up on that. And I want to try something new and different. And I'm going to ask Barb and Joyce to do a mock oral argument. And I'm gonna assign each of you to be an advocate for one side of the case. Barbara, will you take the government position and Joyce make the arguments made by the 19 red states? 
uh, challenging or do I red. look like a red state to you? You Jill? do, sweetheart. You, you sound like one. You know where you, you are. You sound like one. You don't act like one. You don't <laughs> think like one. But I know that you were exposed to them enough that you could do this. You can do this. Uh, remember, we we'll all see. learn to argue any side of a case. Court. That's what we're trained for. Yes, exactly. We're trained. So, Barb, start out as if this was oral argument at SCOTUS, and then Joyce is going to answer you, and then I'll decide if you either of you gets to have some rebuttal. But <laughs> go ahead, Barb, take it away. Make well, your if, argument. If, if this were an oral argument, the appellant would go first. I'm the respondent, so I'm going to sit here and wait to respond okay. to Okay, well then, Joyce, oh, go man. ahead. Oh, man, she's being so snarky. She is. Um, <laughs> but I knew she was going to do that. So look, I'm usually able to argue both sides of anything, but I just have to be upfront here and say that I think the states have it wrong, um, both legally wrong and morally wrong. The states aren't really arguing, and I'm, I'm just not going to be their advocate here, but I, I will explain their argument. They're not really arguing that Title 42 is necessary for public health, but rather to control the border. So the question is whether the Supreme Court should keep Title 42 alive as a border management tool, even though what it's specifically based on is a public health statute, and it was always supposed to be temporary. But the states make the argument that, yes, it should be continued. It's just a naked attempt to use the public health law to continue denying asylum hearings. And in my view, there's not a good argument in favor of, of doing what they're requesting. But if I had to make the argument, here's what I'd say. I'd say, we put all of y'all on the Supreme Court, and now you're supposed to keep ruling in line with our political agenda. It's a bad argument. It's the best argument the states have. And the scary thing is that it might be a winner. That is absolutely frightening. And it is proof that what I said in the beginning is true, which is this is an excuse to avoid doing any kind of legitimate immigration reform in a, a major way, any systemic changes. So, Barb, go ahead and answer that weak argument. Yeah, well, Joyce has made my argument for me, so case closed. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, Joyce, Joyce makes a great argument of, of, for the government's position, but um, on the in the big picture on all of this, uh, you know, the government is arguing that uh, this stay should be denied long term. It will expire on its own on December twenty seventh, uh, and so this is sort of the what next. And the government says that the stay should be lifted. And it, Title 42 should not be used to prevent people from entering the country. Um, but big picture, the government is actually defending the right of the government to enact these kinds of rules um, under Title 42. The court that uh, threw this out said that the, the rule itself was uh, arbitrary and capricious. And so al although the Justice Department agrees that this rule has overstayed its course, that it was invoked during COVID. It made sense to invoke it during COVID. Um, but now, you know, COVID is still here and there in pockets, but it doesn't justify overriding all the normal rules of asylum anymore as it did two years ago. And so, uh, but they want to preserve the right to do this in certain circumstances. Um, even though this one is over, they don't want to let stand an order that says that uh, procedurally it was improper to do it. So it's a little more complicated than just the issue that's before the court. But the one that we're waiting for is simply whether the states have the power uh, to continue this program and that even the government doesn't want to continue. So I, I think for that reason, um, my, my money is on the government winning this round. And Kim, can you talk about the political issues and the humanitarian concerns 
and the consequences for migrants if um, they have a legitimate asylum claim under this current ruling and whether it gets lifted or not? Yeah, we're seeing the consequences happen right now as temperatures drop to unbelievably low levels in places like Texas. Uh, And a lot of these people are left out. I I was watching news coverage this morning where people were even bringing food to where a lot of these asylum seekers were um, staying and waiting for their claims to be heard. Uh, bringing them soup and it froze within like an, under an hour because the conditions outside are so cold. So that's really brutal. All of this is political. Let's be clear. The reason that this case, this challenge is being brought is for political reasons, because Republicans think that immigration is a strong issue for them. And if they can somehow tag Joe Biden with being soft on immigration, that that will be a win. And that's what makes all of this so Um, really upsetting, even more upsetting than it already is. We know that there is actually a desire on a policy level, a bipartisan desire to fix some of the things that are broken with our immigration system to address this. But there is no political will because everybody is looking to their next election. And this is one of the repercussions of that. And it's really infuriating, but it's something that has been in place for decades, certainly for the last two decades that I've lived in Washington, D.C., and seen this play out. So um, it's a sad chapter. Well, now it's time for the part of our show where we answer questions from our listeners. This week, we had a lot of questions, and they're all absolutely fascinating, but we have picked a few um, to start out with. Our first question is from Ed in Alexandria, Virginia. Jill, I think this one is for you. Ed asks, during his term, President Trump spoke for the government's executive branch. Can the government claim First Amendment rights? Well, the government gives First Amendment rights or is prohibited from interfering with them, but it doesn't enjoy them. It's an individual right. Um, on the other hand, there was something sort of related to this question that I found interesting, which was a law school classmate of mine who is a federal district court judge uh, ruled in a case where Donald Trump was trying to prevent people from getting on his Twitter account, his personal one, the at real Donald Trump. And she ruled that it was in fact a government uh, site because of his position and that he could not block people from that, that that would violate their First Amendment rights. So I thought that was interesting. Hey, Barb, um, a process question for you from Amy. She asks, could you please review the process for impaneling a grand jury? What does the DOJ or Jack Smith need to do to initiate a grand jury? When is one used? This is so interesting. I love the grand jury. I, I do It's too. something that, you know, you don't know much about if unless you actually practice in front of one. Um, I, I think that, uh, you know, we heard so much about Fonnie Willis impaneling a grand jury in Georgia that I think there is this thought that you have to impanel one just to start any investigation. And, and typically they're already there. Uh, you know, in, in Detroit, when we were, I was working there, we had three grand juries operating at all times, two that had a life of six months each and one that had a life of 18 months so that they would look at the longer term investigations. Because Jack Smith came in 
um, after these investigations began, I think that grand juries were already investigating both Mar-a-Lago and the January 6th case. So I don't know that he had to impanel a separate grand jury. But just uh, so you know, grand jurors are selected the same way as jurors for trials. Um, you get a notice in the mail. It says, come down for jury service. And only when you arrive are you told that you are going to be sitting on a grand jury and you can't tell anybody about what you're doing. And you're going to be there for either six or 18 months. Um, I used to do their orientation when I was U.S. attorney. And, you know, they, they look like deer in the headlights. You've got to be kidding me. I'm going to be doing, I'm, I'm here for how long? But, you know, I, I would check in with them at midterm and I, I would see them at the end. And it was interesting to see how throughout the course of that, they had really uh, grown to appreciate the importance of the job. And they had been so impressed with the work of all of the federal agents and prosecutors that had come before them. And so I think in the end, people end up having a very positive experience. But my guess is when it comes to Jack Smith, these investigations are underway and uh, the grand juries are already impaneled and um, they did not have to start over just because he became the new boss. Amen. I hope that's all right. Um, you know, the process questions are always really interesting to me. If the news cycle ever slows down, I feel like we could do a whole show talking about how things work and why, except for the fact that it's so nerdy, I might be the only one who would listen to it. But I love that stuff, too. Definitely not. <laughs> Lots of nerds here. Okay, Kim, last question for you. It's from Jory. As we are in the thick of the holiday season, can you give an overview of the reindeer rule in regards to public holiday displays and whether we can expect any changes after recent Supreme Court decisions like Kennedy versus Bremerton School District? You know, before you answer, I just have to say, if, if hashtag sisters-in-law ever writes a lifetime Christmas movie, I want to call it the reindeer rule after this question. <laughs> I, I think that's, that's our movie. Yes, this is a really interesting question. So the reindeer rule holds generally that when a municipality or other public entity creates some sort of holiday display that in, includes something like a nativity scene, so long as it has other uh, a significant amount of other secular imagery, like a reindeer, which is why it gets a reindeer rule, or um, a tree, which actually the Christmas tree is actually not a religious symbol, or, you know, snowflakes or things like that, it will generally be found to be okay. It's some, it does not violate the prohibition uh, of the Establishment Clause of, of government-sponsored religion. Well, what we have seen in recent years is an increased push to have more religious imagery in public spaces. And I think that's what Jory is referring to with um, not just that one case, but a lot of cases in the last year or two at the Supreme Court has really blurred that line when it comes to the Establishment Clause and made it a lot easier for people to display religious imagery in public spaces. I think perhaps, I haven't heard anything yet. I looked around um, and did a little research. I don't see any current big challenges underway, but I think perhaps this year and in the years to come, there may be more of a push to do that for the purpose of bringing these kinds of cases and pushing that em envelope. So I'm going to watch this space. I think as of now, if you see, you know, Mary in the nativity scene alongside Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, it's going to be okay, but we'll keep an eye on it. Thank you for listening to Hashtag Sisters-in-Law with Jill Weinbanks, Barb McQuaid, Kimberly Atkins-Store, and me, Joyce Vance. 
You can send in your questions by email to sistersinlawatpoliticon.com or tweet them for next week's show using hashtag sistersinlaw. Go to politicon.com slash merch to buy our shirts, hoodies, and other goodies just in time for the holidays. And please support this week's sponsors, Osea, Malibu, Lomi, HelloFresh, and Hold On Bags. You can find their links in the show notes. Please support them as we love them and they really make this show happen. To keep up with us every week, follow hashtag SistersInLaw on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please give us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. See you next week with another episode. Hashtag SistersInLaw. Who's Fig? My boxer. Can you, I don't oh. know if you can see her. Yeah. <laughs> no. But, but Fig oh. understands, go get your sweater. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, Fig okay. has a sweater? <laughs> Fig is a boxer, and boxers don't have very much hair. So when it's this cold, she has to wear a sweater. Yeah. Really? She really likes When it's it. this cold, mo- yeah. Did most you make it for her? Wear a little something. You know, I have never knit a dog sweater. I really need to get my act together. And yes, do you do. My husband gave me a pair of pajamas that match a sort of pair of pajamas that he got for Brisbane. So <laughs> I love that. we're. <laughs> That's Wait, awesome. I'm sorry. You and Brisby have matching pajamas. Is that what you're talking about? Yes. I see. I'm do going they to have the picture. little feet in them? Mine do not. No, no, it doesn't. I love this so much. I know. We're going to have to have a picture of it, but because of COVID, I didn't want to get too near anybody, so I haven't done it yet. So I'm saving my pajamas. That's the kind of thing that once you see, you can't unsee. I don't know. That'd be too much for me. We'll we'll see how it comes out. Hey, I posted one of me in a Dalmatian outfit. Remember that? I love that. I do. Can you explain this to me? How did your husband find matching pajamas for you and Brisby? Like, where did he look for that? He saw it in some catalog and was so excited he couldn't believe it. And, of course, he bought himself a pair that his is only pants. He didn't get the top for himself. So and I don't what's the pattern? Is there like a Dalmatian dog print No, it's, it's got a tiger, and it's green. <laughs> it's a Christmas theme. Wait a minute. You and Brisbane are dressed up in tiger pajamas. Yeah. yeah. Can I just say, I am so happy... That Jill and her husband found each other. <laughs> <laughs>